Hello, everyone. This is Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM on the air and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And you're listening to Under the Surface, and I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me. My guest for today is Sandra Worsham, the author of the book Going to Wings, a deeply personal memoir about breaking free of conventions and coming out as a lesbian in the Deep South. Sandra grew up in Milledgeville, Georgia, the home of the famous author Flannery O'Connor, who interestingly wrote a lot about hypocrisy in the name of religion. And as you'll see, this topic has some relationship to Sandra's book. I'm about 70 pages into the book, by the way, and that shows you that it's a page turner since I just bought it. And so far, I've learned that Sandra had to face a number of hurdles throughout her life. She grew up in a very rigid, conservative culture during the 70s in the Deep South, particularly when it came to women and sexuality. Her Christian Baptist background and the expectations of her community was a dominant force in her life. She was expected to get married, and of course in those days, marriage meant only to a man, and be a traditional wife responsible for all the household chores. But at the same time, she was passionately drawn toward women from a very young age, and this awareness caused her constant strife. The book opens in 1975, when at the age of 28, Sandra decided to finally come out as a lesbian to the person closest to her, who was her own mother, in the form of a handwritten letter. But like many gay people even today, she suffered a devastating rejection, and this compelled her to suppress her own sexuality in an attempt to be, quote, normal by her mother's and her community standards. This meant following the steps she was programmed to follow, getting married to a man, doing all the housework, having children, etc., etc., So her memoir tells the story of her own rebellion, as I see it, to these strictures that put her at odds with her true nature. One of the most remarkable things about Sandra and her memoir is that she still lives in the same small town where all the major events took place, that is, in Milledgeville, Georgia. And I want to add that I met Sandra when I myself lived in Milledgeville. I was a creative writing student at Georgia College and State University in the Master of Fine Arts graduate program at the same time that Sandra attended some classes there. And Sandra and I shared our work at many informal gatherings. So Sandra, welcome to Under the Surface, and thanks for coming on the show today. Good to have you here. Hello, Amy. It's good to be here. So why is your book, first of all, called Going to Wings? Can you tell me that? Uh, Yes, it was... um when I first went to a gay Christmas party um, here, and I was very nervous about doing that, um, I met a group of women who told me that they meet down at the Brick every Tuesday, and um, and it's a it's a gathering. They sit right in the middle of all of the other families and everybody that are there, and they invited me to come to that, and um, they called it going to Wings, and they would say, please come to Wings Tuesday. And so they, um, I thought when I first heard that, you know, the literary side of me said, oh, that's wonderful, freedom, going to Wings. I love that title, you know, they're, they're thinking about their own coming out. And, um, but they looked at me puzzled and <laughs> said, no, the chicken wings are cheap on Tuesdays. <laughs> so that was what going to wings meant to them. Uh-huh. It meant more to meant more to me, and I um, used that title for my book because I gave it more than that meaning. 
Right. That's so great. And and this group of women, they um, even though they had this gathering and they were all gay women, they were still not completely out of the closet themselves. Isn't that right? Yes, I, I learned so much when I started coming out um, about the gay culture that I didn't know. I learned that there there are this internalized homophobia, they call it, so that some of my friends are members of the Garden Club and and um, know a lot of people in town that are straight, and they are very self-conscious, so that if anyone in our group said, um, the L word or the G word or anything that other people could overhear, they were very self-conscious about that. And I made a joke that, what do you think these people think we are? You know, a meeting of the Council of Catholic Council of, of um, Women who are planning a bake sale, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, in your book, you wrote that the word lesbian was like the word quote, whore or murderer in the 70s back in Milledgeville, Georgia, where you grew up, and that you even worried that you'd be sent to Central State, which was then the huge mental institution in Milledgeville. Tell me about that. Why murderer in particular? Uh, Just a bad word, a word that meant something despicable, Um, you know, leper, Mm -hmm. just a as though if you were if you were the word lesbian was associated with you, you would almost have to walk through the town and call out the word lesbian, lesbian. It was a word that, as I grew up and when I was in college, um, I'm sure there were gay women at Georgia Southern where I went to college, but I never knew that there were at the time. And the word was used in a very derogatory term and. It mm-hmm. took me a long time to ever be able to use that word in relation to myself or my friends. And if truth be told, I still probably cringe a little bit with uh-huh. that word. Yeah, it's hard because of all the, the programming, cultural programming that we get. And uh, what about Central State? Were you, were you seriously concerned that you might get sent to the mental institution for having a, a lesbian relationship? I I seriously, at the moment that my husband and my mother found out about the relationship that I had with Ellen, um, it was, it was, that night was just horrifying. It was like I had committed some terrible crime and that there was something very wrong in capital letters about Mm me. Right. So that um, because Central State was there, um, there was always that fear that you would, that maybe somebody would want to, you know, you were sick. Like my mother came over and she made oatmeal. That meant that I was sick. And so you have this fear that they'll send you to somewhere, a place where you could be cured. Did she make oatmeal after she found out that you were gay? Pardon me? Did you say that she made oatmeal for you when she found out that you were a lesbian? Oh. The, uh, well, one night, um, my, uh, Ellen's husband called my husband and said, your wife has been making right. love with my wife. And, and so that was, you know, I was outed. And in order to punish me, um, my husband did the thing that he knew would punish me more than anything else. And he said, call up your mother and tell her about this. And if you don't, I'm going to. And so... 
that night my mother came over and she brought her blood pressure instrument because she would need to take her blood pressure because she would be so upset. And that night she came over and I was outed and, um, you know, told that you've got to not do this. This is, you can't, what my mother said was, you can't do just anything you want to if it hurts other people. Right. Um, I, I remember that very vividly in the book. And um, and I know that this is the way it, it was everywhere to a degree that homophobia was rampant and even worse than it is today back in the 70s. But do you think it was much more so in Milledgeville uh, during the 70s and among your Christian Baptist friends and relations? It sounds like it, it definitely was from what you just described. Well, of course, I didn't know what was going on anywhere else. Um, I just knew what was going on in my area at the time. And in that in that time period, I don't know that I could have written this book then. Right. It was, uh, things were, things are much different now than they were then. Yeah. I don't think I would have had the reception in this town then that I do now. In fact, when I was having the relationship with Ellen, it was all very secret. There was, you know, I had to sneak around and hide and right. and lie to my husband and to my mother. And, and of course, you know, I'm not saying that, that it was okay for me to do that. I was married, so I was still committing adultery. Right. But. Yeah. And I, I read that part recently, and I have questions about it, too. But in the chapter about your wedding day, and I, I mean your first wedding in 1969 to a man— you mentioned the Stonewall Riots in New York City, the series of uprisings by LGBT community in response to a police raid at the Stonewall Inn, a bar in Greenwich Village. And um, I know in 1970, that was the first gay pride march in, in New York City. So yeah, I guess I was just going to ask, um, did you see that as pertaining to you in any way? Or were you unaware of those things that were happening elsewhere. I was completely unaware. I right. had no idea that any of those things were going on. In fact, it was only when I came out in my 60s that I began to learn anything about um, the gay liberation movement. or I, I didn't know any of that was going on. Right. And so um, yeah. it was when I went to a, a, an Olivia Cruz, which is a... A cruise company um, just for lesbians, and it's that was a um, big culture shock for me to go on an Olivia cruise, and that's when I learned they had their 40th anniversary cruise, and that's when I learned uh, a lot about the history of the gay liberation movement and all that other women before yeah. me had done to make things easier for us today. And how old were you when you went on the Olivia cruise? Pardon me? How old were you when you went on the Olivia cruise? Oh, the first Olivia cruise was right after I... It was uh, soon after I went to the first gay Christmas party, and I would have been in my early 60s. So this is really interesting because I just happened to be listening to Chris Williamson, who was the one who started the Olivia company that made the first women-owned um, record company for her album. And she well, was Judy Delujak is the one. It's actually the one who started the Olivia Records. But Chris was probably one of the first artists 
that performed with Olivia Records and Meg Christian also. Uh Okay, so you're aware of that. So I had read that Olivia became a travel company, and so now you've just completed that by mentioning the cruise. Yes. So that's really interesting. So um, it seemed like you got involved with a woman, Ellen, you referred to. That was your first gay relationship. For the first time right after protesting the inequality of your marriage to your husband at a meeting you went to at the National Organization for Women, a meeting in which you actually spoke out about the unfairness of all the housework you were expected to do as a woman and a wife. Was there a link between your dawning awareness of feminism and the fact that you spoke out to your husband about this, as well as the start of the relationship with Ellen? Well, the relationship with Ellen was just that I fell in love, and and that was such a shock to me. I didn't know I didn't know how other women felt about their husbands. I didn't know how you were supposed to feel about having sex with your husband, or you know. But when I was with Ellen, it was like a whole different plane. You know, I knew how it. I learned how it felt to really be in love, to really be strongly sexually attracted to someone. I never had that feeling about my husband. And so um, the reason I went to the NOW meeting was because I was angry that we both worked, and he came home and sat down in his chair, and I came home, and I had to decide what to fix for supper and cook supper, and I was responsible for cleaning up the house, and his mother had done that, and they lived right next door to us. She was a nurse, and she went to work, and she came home, and then she cooked and cleaned, and and while the husband sat in the chair and smoked a cigarette and watched TV, and it made me angry. And so I went to the NOW meeting and stood up and asked if anybody there was tired of being a maid, too. (laughs) Yeah, and you got a, a sort of a big uh, applause for that, didn't you? A lot of yes, r- good response. So the relationship with Ellen was extremely daring. I mean, when I read it, I was like, wow, I, Sandra did this. Not, o- not only because it was a gay relationship, but also because of the risks you took at work in the high school where you both taught, passing those stapled notes to each other through the students. Yes. You were working as a high school teacher, and Ellen was also a high school teacher. And you would pass these notes um, and then even make out sometimes in the faculty room early in the morning. Are you surprised at all looking back that you took such tremendous risks? Yes, I am. It scares me to death. I'm lucky that um, I think God was really looking after me and intending for me to do something else in my life because, I mean, it's, I could have been fired. I could have been disgraced, you know, run out of town. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it just shows how strong your, your desire was, it sounds like, to break free of the, the strictures you were under. Yes, it was overwhelming. It really was. In fact, I was wondering if there was an unconscious wish, maybe, to... Do you ever wonder if you wanted to be outed for who you really were in some way because you took those risks, a, a small part of you? No, I don't think I wanted to be outed then at all. I okay. think I just wanted to to be with Ellen and, and have you know, have that relationship. I was just, I was like a teenage boy at that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know for sure how things turned out with your mother. And as I, um, I, as I mentioned earlier, your mother did, and you mentioned, she did not respond well to the news uh, that you were gay. Did your mother ever come out, come to accept you as a lesbian before she died? 
Uh, no, because I didn't ever accept myself as a lesbian before oh, she died. I see. That's interesting. I, um, I kept, I convinced myself in my 20s that if it was such a horrible thing to my mother, I mean, she said, I can't stay in Milledgeville if you do this. I'm going to have to move. That was, you know, it was just, and I think I probably had severe panic attacks that night. I didn't know what that was at the time. I just knew that I was having a feeling that I couldn't live with and that I had to make go away at any cost. And that's when I decided that I would change myself. I didn't even know that being gay is not a choice back then. And I thought, well, I'm I'm trying to do something bad and I can change myself. And I actually thought the words in my head that I want to be as good as I can possibly be so that I will never again in my life have to feel this horrible, smothering feeling of guilt. Yeah, wow. Yes, and as you mentioned, um, you were so you were 28 when you handed this letter to your mother. Um, and as you said, she, she said she would have to leave Milledgeville if you moved in with Ellen when she found out that, you know, when you put in this letter that you wanted to be with Ellen as your lover. She um, said she would have to leave Milledgeville, who's then your girlfriend, if you pursued that relationship. And she said there were women, quote, like that when she was in nurses training and that everyone talked about them and looked down on them. It seemed like her response was partially fear about how others would treat you and tr- and herself if you moved in with Ellen and had a relationship. And what I'm wondering is, do you think that your mother would have come to accept you now if she were still alive today? And if you, as you said, fully accepted yourself the way you do now and had seen the, you know, the greater acceptance, if she had seen the greater acceptance towards gay people today, as opposed to in the deep South in the seventies. I'm so glad you asked that question because I don't, I didn't give my mother time to accept. I had that horrible reaction to her reaction. Right. And I didn't, I mean, I just immediately said, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's what I did, and then I became a Catholic, and I just and I and I made up my mind. I went in denial, and I for thirty years convinced myself that I was not gay, that I was a good person, that I didn't have to feel guilty as long as I was obedient to the church, and I didn't give my mother time. Um, if my mother were alive today, she would love my wife. They would have a fabulous relationship. Um, and things are accepted more today. I think partially her feeling was very strong fear against about what would happen to me and also shame because, you know, she would be ashamed of me. She would be, um, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a good person and she would feel ashamed of me. Yes. And so I'm curious, if your mother were alive today, what would you say to her? What do you think you would want to say? I would say uh, I, I want you to get to know my wife. Um, I would. It's hard for me to imagine, but I I really think that that she would have eventually come around. Right. I don't think she would have ever liked it. Uh, my mother was and father were both teetotalers, and and I. Uh, drank wine with my dinner in front of my mother, and she never liked it. Oh, really? She, um, she, but she, um, there wasn't anything she could do about it because mm-hmm. I had the courage to stand up to her when it came to having a glass of wine with my dinner. I knew that 
see that it's all connected with how the world saw everything as well. I knew that having a glass of wine with dinner, the world didn't look down on me for that. Mm-hmm. But being gay, um, the world did look down on me for that. Mm-hmm. In in my opinion, then and. So it was just a matter of where do you draw the line? Where are you able to... Well, I have an image in my book that I knew how to... I grew African violets, and I knew how to break off the leaf from the um, the new baby violet. When the baby violet comes uh, becomes as large as your thumbnail, then you can break off the mother leaf, and the violet can stand on its own. And I had an image that I, I knew how to wean violets, but I didn't know how to wean myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like that imagery in the book. And one thing I noticed is, yeah, you were extremely close to your mother, even while during, you know, your marriage. And, and I'm just wondering, is part of that closeness that you had, was that, do you think that was unique to your relationship with your mother? Or do you think part of it was a, a southern thing that in the deep south there was a tended to be this very close bond between mother and daughter in your where you grew up in that community no i don't think it's a southern thing i think everybody has that and some people um you know break away from it and become become themselves and their their own adult selves but i think that relationship especially with the same-sex parent, the mother mm-hmm. to the daughter, the father to the son. Uh, I think, too, when the mother, unless there was a bad relationship there, which there often is, I think if there's a good relationship, that um, that bond is very difficult to break, and I don't think it's a Southern thing. I think I think Northerners might like to think it's a Southern thing, but I don't believe it is. Okay. Yeah, and I, I also... I noticed that your mother was often jealous when you developed these close relationships. So it seemed like she had a mixture of emotions. You know, one, she was afraid that it would turn into an Ellen relationship, a sexual relationship. But on the other hand, it also seemed that she was jealous. Like when you started to spend time with Mary Louise, the older woman that you showed you New York City for the first time. Yeah, she was absolutely jealous. She was she was jealous of time spent. You know, if I was spending time with someone else, and she also could sense that I was um, being taken in, you know, being influenced by by another person. And um, yeah, I could see that with um, with uh, the older woman, particular particularly because it was almost like that woman became another mother, a, an alternate version of your mother to you for a while. Exactly, and we also haven't mentioned my um, 30-year relationship with Teeny, with Elizabeth Horn, whose nickname was Teeny. Uh, that was probably the most significant event, most significant relationship in my life. And mm-hmm. she was um, a Catholic woman who was 25 years older than me, who had been my chemistry teacher in high school. And I think that um, she was more in touch with, she. I think she knew that deep down she had uh, an attraction to women, but she was a very strong Catholic who would not break the rules of the Catholic Church in any way. And we had a 30-year celibate relationship in Mm -hmm. which it worked on its own terms because she was following the rules of the Catholic Church, and I was in total denial that I was gay. So it it was a wonderful relationship, but my mother accepted that relationship. 
Do you think she accepted it more because she knew how religious and Catholic uh, Tina yes, was? Yes, I do. I think that. And and um, also, though, I didn't live with Tina while my mother was alive. And I think if I had done that, she would have been jealous again, you know, because she was elderly and she probably would want me to be living with her. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, but, but she did, as my sister said to me, she did accept my relationship with teeny and i think mm-hmm. it was that was that relationship with teeny to me was safe you know i didn't have to come out i mm-hmm. I, had, I could have a number one love person in my life and was there... i think with my mother it was safe too because teeny had a wonderful relationship in town and i think that was like i was in a safe place so was there any physical component to that i know you said it was celibate well, we we would hug, and Teeny drew the line at a at a quick peck on the lips, mm-hmm. and that was it. It never ever in our whole life went past that line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't gotten up to that part in the book, but I saw that chapter. So you had this initial very passionate sexual relationship with with a woman, and then after that, you had two relationships that were not that were actually platonic. Then, right? Yeah. And I just was wondering before we take a a break here, you said that you knew that it was just deeply scorned, the idea of being a lesbian. And I'm wondering, were there any uh, out lesbians in in, um, the Deep South at that time that you knew of? That's a good question. Um, If there were, I didn't know them. And if there were, they were um, they were considered odd. Mm-hmm. There was I, I've heard of a woman here who always wore boots, men's clothing, and people just considered her odd. Mm-hmm. And but, what about gay men? Was there a more acceptance then, or was it the same? Oh no, it would have been the same. They mm-hmm. would have tried to hide, and it would be much harder for a man that has effeminate uh, movements and everything. It mm-hmm. would have been, you know, very difficult for them. Right. They would have been bullied, and and you know. Made fun of and looked down on. Right. Well, I think this is a a good time for us to take a little break, and we're going to listen to a song that comes up in Sandra's book. It's the famous Spanish song, Malagueña, which was actually written by the Cuban composer Ernesto Lacona. This was the song that Sandra's first love, Ellen, who we were talking about, used to sing on the guitar. And we're going to hear Connie Francis's version, believe it or not. And then we'll hear a couple of announcements, and we'll be back. So stay tuned, everyone.
You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. And we're back. Thanks for listening. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface, and you're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, on the air and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And we just heard the song Malaganya, a song that surfaces in the book Going to Wings, a memoir written by my guest, the author Sandra Worsham. So let's get back to our conversation, Sandra. All right. Yeah, so your church, the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Milledgeville, was and is extremely important to you, as far as I know. And it seems like it was the main fabric of your community in Milledgeville. And I know you started out as a Baptist, but converted to Catholicism. Yet both of these forms of Christianity traditionally reject homosexuality. What were some of the specific struggles you faced with the Church, and how did you come to terms with them? Well, the reason, one of the reasons that I became Catholic after having grown up Southern Baptist uh, is that I was trying not to be gay. And so I specifically chose a church that um, would tell me that being gay was wrong. I sought that out because I was going to try not to be gay and not to have to feel guilty again for the rest of my life or that panicky feeling. Um, so it's it's ironic that I sought that out, but then later... I wanted them to accept when I did come out, and it's it's been a long process. I don't ever remember dealing with that with the Baptist Church. I did have a wonderful Sunday school cl- uh, teacher during the time that I was involved with Ellen who um, told me, we didn't actually have a discussion, but she told me um, with an understanding, not everybody is judgmental. And I knew that she was telling me that she... um, A lot of people in Milledgeville thought that I was gay before I did. Mm -hmm. And I learned that when I started coming out, you know, and it it made me mad because I thought, well, I should be the one to decide, not you. (laughs) That's right. But I did find that when I told people, they would say they already knew it. And I'm thinking, how do you know it when I didn't know it? Mm -hmm. Do you think um, some of that was gossip or just a sense that they got from you? I think it was their internal gaydar. (laughs) Wow. And so I know you said to me that despite your church's rhetoric on homosexuality, there was a tacit acceptance of gay members of the church as long as those members kept quiet and stayed in the closet. Is that true? That's exactly true. It's a don't ask, don't tell policy. And when 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 the priest found out that I had married a woman, he fired me from playing the organ at the Catholic Church, and I'd been playing the organ for about 25 years, and he fired me. And um, what he said was, "What where you went wrong was making it public. Wow. Yeah, but then that, uh, that had a good ending in the way, didn't it? I don't know what the latest status is, but you did return to that organ playing, didn't you? 
No, I never returned. Oh. I was never allowed to return to playing the organ. Oh. I did. Um, I did try to go back to the Catholic Church several times. Um, I went back once when I, I told the priest, "I'm mad at you. I need to forgive you, and I want to go to communion mm-hmm. and receive the Eucharist." And he said, "Well, can you go in Greensboro or Macon, which are two cities that are close by, um, instead of here?" Wow. And then I, I mean that that sent me flying away again because I, it just was so wrong. You know, I felt if I'm worthy to receive the Lord in Greensboro or Macon, then I'm worthy to receive the Lord in Milledgeville. Of course. And I thought and, that you had told me that when you came back and talked to him, he did welcome you back. That wasn't the well, case. Well, then that was later. That was mm-hmm. actually a couple of years later oh. that I, I went back and. What I did was I I did not discuss my relationship with my wife at all. I I didn't say I'm sorry. I didn't confess that I had done anything wrong. I just said I would like to come back. And he said, welcome. Uh, I did not specifically ask him about receiving the Eucharist um, because I knew he would still say no. Mm -hmm. But I did talk to a wonderful um Catholic nun who is uh, her mission is LGBT people and she told me that I needed to go ahead and go to the receive the Eucharist that um, that it may make the priest uncomfortable at first but that he would get over it he'd get used to it so and, so, yeah. and also they cannot deny you communion at the altar rail primarily because they're not supposed to presume, and they're also not supposed to make a scene at the altar, which I probably would have done. Yeah, it's interesting when they talk about freedom of religion as this argument on the right for people to deny baking cakes for gay couples. What about freedom of religion for gay people to attend the church of their choice and participate in communion? Yes, exactly. Well, this is very relevant right now, too, because there's a Catholic priest, Father James Martin, who has just published a book, and the title is something like Building Bridges, and it's about the ways in which the Catholic Church needs to change in order to make gay people feel welcome in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And this priest is receiving praise on one side and condemnation on the other side. Interesting. So do you go back to your church, the Sacred Heart in Milledgeville, or do you not attend the services? I have, um, I kept trying to go, and when um, the Supreme Court overturned DOMA, I was so excited. You know, our marriage was legal in Georgia. We had married in Vermont, but our marriage became legal in Georgia, and I was so excited And I went to Mass that night, and the entire sermon was about what a horrible thing this is for our country. And he was almost wringing his hands at the altar. And he could never perform those marriages, and this was just a terrible thing for our country. And and I just, you know, it was like it just hit me in the face all over again. Yeah. Then when Pope Francis came, it was just wonderful to see him at Ground Zero and to see the way that people responded to him. And then I went to Mass that night, and instead of he didn't he did not even mention that Pope Francis was in the United States. His sermon was on if your eye offends you, pluck it out, and you know if your hand offends you, cut it off. And um, I don't know. I just I just reached a point where. I um, 
I couldn't keep going there, and mm-hmm. I'm now an Episcopalian. Oh. This is not this is not in the book. Uh, the book ends mm-hmm. with me still being Catholic and mm-hmm. questioning, not knowing where the Catholic Church is going to go. You know, and it's left a little open at the book. But I am going to the Episcopal Church now, and I've joined the Episcopal Church. And to me, it feels like the new and improved Catholic Church. Yeah, and there's no Unitarian Universalist Church by any chance in Milledgeville. <laughs> Church. Oh, no, and, I would and, love it if I, if there was a UCC church. Mm-hmm, um, right. That's where we got married in Vermont was a mm. UCC oh, church, and yeah. we don't have one of those in Milledgeville. Right. But the Episcopal Church has been extremely welcoming. In fact, there's a young gay male couple mm-hmm. that go there. They're ushers, and the priest is going to marry them in the church in November. And that's in Milledgeville, Georgia. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I certainly don't blame you for not wanting to set foot back at Sacred Heart. <laughs> yes, um, the people there are wonderful, and I love them dearly, and they mm-hmm. have been very accepting to me. Mm-hmm. But the entire church—I mean, Pope Francis is giving us some hope, but right now, um, I just—I don't feel the Jesus that I love loves me, and I don't. I don't believe that the Catholic Church is right on this issue. Right. So your former church, the Sacred Heart in Milledgeville, it's the same church that the author Flannery O'Connor attended, isn't that right? Yes, it is. And for people who don't know, Flannery O'Connor lived in Milledgeville, Georgia, the famous author, in the same town where Sandra lives, and was herself a Catholic with deeply held religious views. And basically all of her stories and novels— I would say, are about this disconnect between Christian principles and ethics and the actual behavior of people, often people modeled off of actual residents of Milledgeville. So this leads me to my next question, Sandra. Do you see any parallels between your own experience with the church and the hypocrisy that Flannery O'Connor wrote about in her short stories and novels? Well, I think that Flannery O'Connor... wrote about people that had an extremely um, strong religious belief that was often acted out in the form of something that a Protestant might do. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that if, you're, uh, if you have this strong belief and you're a Catholic, then you join a convent or a monastery and are heard from no more. But if you are a Protestant and you have this strong belief, then you travel around getting into all sorts of trouble. I'm I'm wondering, though, about how she, in a lot of her stories, she talks about, you know, how people who think of themselves as very religious and following the church in actual practice, in their behavior, they're not really following the church. That's just what I was wondering in terms of your experience. I think the people that Flannery O'Connor was criticizing are the secular humanists who try to be so good, but don't have the strong belief um, in God. And Mm. I think, you know, in every story of Flannery O'Connor's, there's a moment at which the main character comes face-to-face with God in some form or another, uh, whether it's being gored by a bull or, um, you know, being shot like the grandmother. I think there's a... Uh you know, believes that there's a moment right. where we have an opportunity for conversion. Right. But I think that she also was reflecting on people who think of themselves as good church people, etc., and who 
don't really live up to that when push comes to shove. Like good country people and the the Bible salesman and good country people who was trying to be so good, and then he went off with her wooden leg. Well, and even the main character who thought of herself in a certain way. So that's what I was thinking about in terms of, you know, the rejection that you received from your church, the Catholic Church. I mean, yes, it's, it's in keeping with the doctrine, the Catholic traditional doctrine, but is it in keeping with all the teachings of Jesus? Well, the hypocrisy is where you went wrong was making it public. You know, that um, as long as right. everything looks okay on the surface, right. then it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, um, I mean, look at all of the priest abuse and everything, as long as it was hidden and people didn't know it, and you can move this priest, the bishop can move this priest to another parish, um, that's hypocrisy uh, to the greatest extent. Right. And I think that that is something that she addresses in some of her stories, you know, that these people um, sort of have the appearance of being good people, but then when they're really in a situation, like the way your head of your church was in a direct situation with you, saying, we'll just cover it up. Exactly. It does seem Well, it's not what Jesus would do. I'll put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So Flannery, we're speaking of Flannery O'Connor, and she wasn't universally loved, from what I hear, by everyone in Milledgeville, where she lived for, for a long time and wrote most of her work, since she did model some of her characters on real people in the town. And now you've written a memoir with what I assume to be mostly the real names of the people in your life, or in any case, people who could be recognized, how has that worked out for you as a current resident of Milledgeville yourself? I have been completely overwhelmed with the love and support that I've gotten in response to this book. Um, I had a reading in downtown Milledgeville last Sunday, and um, almost 100 people came, and uh, the biggest majority of them were not gay people. Um, that has been, that means a lot to me because I don't want my book to just be a book written for gay people. I want it to be a book that will help people who are not gay Mm -hmm. to understand what our experience is. And one of the groups of people that have have meant more to me than anything else are my former students from Baldwin High School. Mm -hmm. They have been extremely supportive of me from I mean, it's just like we have a renewed friendship, and I have been so appreciative of my former students. They came to my reading. They respond positively on Facebook, mm-hmm. and um, I, I made an announcement at the reading, how many of you are my former students, and they raised their hands, and I said, now, I don't want you all to forget to come to my funeral, too. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that's really wonderful to hear, and... I'm wondering, do any of those students remember you back then and remember passing notes between you and Ellen, the other teacher at Baldwin? No, that was when I was teaching in another county, oh, and okay. I didn't. That didn't happen at Baldwin High School. Mm-hmm. I had I had um, grown up a little bit by then. Mm-hmm. It would be amazing if one of those teachers, I mean, one of those students, got a hold of your book, one of the ones that actually passed the notes, <laughs> and could find yeah. out. Yeah. Well, I do I do still know some of them, but I, I haven't been in touch with them, and I don't know if they would remember any of that or not. Would you say that your book was your official coming out in Milledgeville? I mean, I know that's not the whole focus of the book, 
but it still is a, a very public, it's a public work. Well, it is, and it's very personal, and I should be scared to death about that, but I'm not, strangely enough. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I just feel I've reached a point in my life where I, I hid from myself for so long. I buried a part of myself, and and now it doesn't seem that difficult to be who I really am among the people that I've grown up around because I have... I have come to accept that part of myself. Yeah, it seems like you have wanted for a long time to be able to be yourself and not have any guilt at all and to be free. And now you're finally able to do that. Exactly. It's wonderful that you can combine that with your talent with writing and your art. Um, But back to my question about the living in Milledgeville, the same place where all these major events happen in your life. Um, Are there people that you've written about that are in Milledgeville that probably know about your book? Well, yes, and everyone that um, whose real names I used, I got permission, mm-hmm. and they were, um, I have friends who have um, have come out more themselves, I think. Um, because of your book, do you think? Well, partly, partly because of my book, but also because of the overturning of DOMA and um, I have one couple uh, in particular that has, have gotten married this year um, here in Milledgeville. We, one of our group who has passed away um, is a Baptist minister, and she married this couple in a very moving ceremony at their home. Um, and uh, the little dog even had on a wedding veil. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But they oh. um, they have said that they feel so much more accepted and so much more willing to, um, you know, to be in the yard and call each other sweetie and, you know, not worry about what the neighbors are overhearing because they realize that their marriage is just as legitimate as everybody else's marriage. Mm-hmm. And that, that just feels different to have to know that your marriage is just as legal mm-hmm. as the man and woman who live next door. Yeah. And that you have just as much right mm-hmm. to call each other sweetie in the yard as they do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I know um, your book is about um, different important romantic relations, relationships you had, and also about finding your life partner, Letha, who is now your spouse, and you found her through a personal ad online. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, we met on Match.com. Um, I went on the, on another Olivia cruise, and on the way home, I was talking about wishing that I could find someone in my life. And um, one of my friends said, well, you need to get on Match.com. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door in Milledgeville, Georgia. And when I got home, I wrote a profile, and I got on Match.com, and I was scared to death. But um, I met I met Letha, who lived in North Carolina, and um, and we really believe that God brought us together because um, we are so alike one another, but we're not that much. You know, there are stereotypical jokes that 
um, that gay women make that um, they all know how to use power tools and they all mm-hmm. like to watch sports on TV and mm-hmm. all of these things are funny that we laugh at that are partially true. Oh. And But Lisa and I don't like to watch sports on TV and we don't know how to use power tools <laughs> and, and we would rather sit in the chair and read and write in our journals and, mm-hmm. you know, we're just a little different from a lot of our friends, and we're perfect for each other. Right. And how has the publication of your book affected Letha? Well, at first she was very nervous. And um, before we went to the first reading, which would be where, I mean, she even overheard people whispering and saying, where's Letha? Oh, there she is right there. And um, she was aware that I was really outing her against her will, mm-hmm. and but but she has just she's just been wonderful. She's first of all she's a very outgoing person, and I never have to worry about introducing her to anybody because she's always introducing herself and getting to know people. She's just a natural at that, and and then in a, uh, we I just had a reading and at Carmichael's in Louisville, Kentucky, and she made a lot of friends there, and she just seems to be um, just falling into uh, being who she is. And she had years and years of hiding, just Mm -hmm. like so many uh, gay women have had. And yet she's coming to accept herself Mm -hmm. through through being outed through this book. It's Mm -hmm. helping her to accept herself more. Mm Mm-hmm. And her colleagues at work, I know that that was sort of under wraps for a while. I mean, have has that been something that's come up at all? Thank God she's retired. Oh, okay. All right, so she doesn't even have to think about that. Okay, and my last question is, are you planning a reading in Milledgeville soon or elsewhere? And also, please let us know where people can find your book. Um, my book is available on Amazon and also on in independent bookstores. Um, throughout the United States, any indep- independent bookstore, either they will have it or they can order it. Um, the what was the other? Oh, oh I was just if you plan uh, to have a reading in Milledgeville. I was I, I've already had the one at, in mm-hmm. downtown Milledgeville at the Arts at Allied Arts. Oh, right. And mm-hmm. I've got another one at Georgia College and State University, November the twenty eighth, mm-hmm. and um, I have one. Um, on November the 6th in at Avid Bookstore in Athens, oh, great. Georgia. Yeah. And I have one at uh, in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, I don't remember the date of that, but I I put on my schedule, my tour schedule on Facebook. Mhm. Um So people can just look up your name to find you on Facebook if they put in Yes, sa- they can. Send mm-hmm. me a friend request. Sandra Worsham, W O R S H A M on Facebook. Um, yes. I should be able to find you there. In Milledgeville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we've, we're getting close to the end of the show. Um, well, we're pretty much at the end. So you've been listening to Under the Surface. I'm Amy Landau talking to Sandra Worsham, the author of a new memoir called Going to Wings. Sandra, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Amy. It's been fun. Oh, and before you go, though, I'm planning to close with that song called On the Way to You, sung by Nancy Lamott. Do you want to tell us why that song is so important? We heard that song um, in a restaurant, and all of the words were just perfect for our story. And so it became our song, and we had it played at our wedding. 
and it's just when you hear the words, you'll know why. Yep, and so this was played at your wedding, Talitha. And thanks for listening, everybody. I would love to hear from some of my listeners, so please let me know you're out there. You can post on the Facebook page. If you just look up Under the Surface, it's actually Under the Surface 1 on Facebook. You'll find it, the page, and I would love to hear your comments and know you're out there. So please tune in again next Sunday at noon. And if you're not able to tune in on Sunday, you can always listen to my past shows on Facebook at Under the Surface Radio Program. So we're going to listen to On the Way to You, sung by Nancy Lamott. Enjoy, everyone. How often as I wait for sleep, I find myself reciting the words I said or should have said. Like scenes that need rewriting The smiles I never answered Doors perhaps I should have opened Songs forgotten Tears I may have squandered The many pipers I have paid Along the roads I've wandered Yet all the time I knew it Love was somewhere out there waiting Though I may regret a kiss or two Change a thing.